And we have read about the great victory that God had accomplished through Gideon and his 300 men. And we would expect as we come to the end of Judges chapter 7 and reading about this great victory of the 300 versus all of the Midianites and this great alliance of Midianites and the people of the east who had battled against the Lord's people and God delivering them that we would read those final words and that the land had rest for X amount of years like we've seen throughout the judges at this point. God comes in, delivers, the land has rest, the people seem to be okay with God for a while, then they forget the Lord, go back to doing the things they were doing again, and the cycle starts all over again. But, interestingly enough, the end of Judges chapter 7 does not present us with that. Unfortunately, we have another page here of things that happened with Gideon. Uh, And unfortunately, it is a sad conclusion to the life of Gideon that we're going to look at. And so as we read about Gideon and what happens with him, we're going to pay particular attention to looking at what do we learn about the mistakes that he makes and what the people make after this great deliverance that God had accomplished. And in particular, then try to identify for ourselves what the title of the lesson is, how godly people fall. How can we go from this great deliverance as God brings this salvation to Israel and uses Gideon and brings about the deliverance of the people and then turn around and read about what we read in this next chapter of of a horrible ending then to the people of Israel and Gideon himself. So that's what we're going to spend our time looking at. The beginning of chapter uh, 8 is is interesting. As here, remember now, chapter 7 has ended and Gideon is driving the Midianites. They've slaughtered most of the Midianites who have, who have come against them. They're chasing a couple of the kings and running them, them off. And we have in chapter 8, verse 1, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, speaking to Gideon, What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebizar? God has given into your hands the priests of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. All right. First interesting statement. Here is God giving this great victory for Gideon. They, with only 300 men, have taken out over 135,000 Midianites. And they are chasing these two kings and they are trying to attract them down and run them down. And in the middle of this great victory and God has given this deliverance, we have the, the people of, it, of Ephraim come along and go, well, hey, why weren't we asked to participate in this? You left us out. And I want us to consider just a couple of thoughts. The first, what we're seeing here is the problem of, of pride. Right away, a, a common issue that we as humans deal with is the issue of pride. And they are not joyful that God has brought this great salvation. They're not rejoicing with Gideon and going, boy, it sure is great that God has been with you, Gideon, and gave you this great victory. Isn't it wonderful for Israel that God is with us and has brought us this great deliverance with only 300 men? 
They don't say any of those things. They don't rejoice in the deliverance that was to come. They simply say, well, why weren't we involved? Which I have to make a quick aside that I thought about that. I thought we've all seen that and experienced that. Once the work is done, oh, well, hey, why didn't you ask me to do that? I don't know. For the last seven years, we've been afflicted by Midian. At any time, you could have helped. We've had seven years of this oppression going on. And now that the victory is secure, here comes the men of Ephraim going, well, hey, we should have been a part of that. Well, go right ahead. Any time that would have been how I would have been with Gideon with this. And I just find it fascinating that the issue that the people of Ephraim have is not to rejoice in God, to hold up and support Gideon and go, that is great and the faith that you have and all that has happened. What they come along and say is, well, we wanted to say in the matter, why didn't you ask us about this? Why didn't you include us in these things? Now, and I showed you that map before. Remember, Ephraim is not really involved in the problem. They are to the south, and they're not where this invasion had occurred. So it's not like there's some big snubbing on Gideon's part that's going on here. Ephraim is not affected by the invasion of the Midianites in the slightest. So again, as I mentioned, if they wanted to help, it's not like Israel didn't know for seven years what was going on with the Midianite invasion. Instead, what they are concerned about is they want to have a say. They want to be able to have some input. Why didn't you consult us? Why didn't you let us have a say in these things? And I find that so interesting because I think this is one of the ways that we see godly people fall is that we become far more concerned about an opinion or making sure that we have had our say or we've had our input rather than being concerned with look at what God is accomplishing. Look at the work that is being done. Look at what the Lord has done here. They're not even remotely like, boy, isn't this wonderful of what God has done. They're mad at Gideon. In fact, you see that in verse 1. They accuse him fiercely. I'm Gideon, I'm like, for what? <laughs> for what? What? Because we didn't ask you about this. God has done this. God has selected the 300 men. Take it up with God that He didn't call upon the men of Ephraim. But God has given us this victory, and why don't we rejoice in that? And I think it's important for us to consider how important it is that you see that this is the problem of pride. It really simply boils down to that. And why was my opinion not involved? Why was I not consulted? Why was I not given my say? And I think it is, a, is an important warning and is a danger that can happen even among God's people. I believe that what we see here happening with the men of Ephraim would be uh, tantamount to me getting upset at you when you had a Bible study with somebody and you didn't ask me about it. What? <laughs> you go do the work. I'm glad you're doing the things of God. You don't have to consult us. You don't have to consult me. And yet that's what the people of Ephraim are doing is what we've done, what God has called us to do. Well, why didn't you ask us about it? Because I don't have to. I'm doing what God instructed me to do. That's exactly what Gideon has on his side is God told me to do this. He didn't say, go talk to you all about it. And so often we can be in that kind of position and there is, there is such a danger with, with that. And I, I have seen those things and I think you probably have it too at various times. 
from the danger of I've seen preachers preventing the appointment of elders because they want to be able to have an input. They want to be able to have a say. They want to be able to have some kind of control over things. I've seen that with elderships. And elderships have done that over a congregation. You're not allowed to do anything unless you run it through us first. I don't think so. God's told you what you need to do. You don't have to do God's work through an eldership. You know what you're supposed to do. You go and do that work. I've seen that even when there are business meetings. Well, I need to have my say and have my input before anybody can accomplish anything. This is what I believe the men of Ephraim are doing is... God has done a great work. Can we rejoice in the work of God? Can we be glad in the work that's being accomplished? Do we have to then come in like they do and have this problem? In fact, do you find it interesting how Gideon deals with that? It reveals that this is all about pride. Because Gideon goes, Oh, well, I knew that you guys were such awesome warriors. What, what were we to have to bring you in for this? You know, basically that's his response. You guys were too good for this battle. You know, and then, then they feel good about it. Then they leave him alone after he strokes their ego after uh, saying, you know, well, you know, I know you guys are, are, are pretty special there. Verse two is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape orifice of Ebizur. And, you know, here it is. We, we, we knew that, you know, you guys were great. And hey, you've got the two kings at the end. And so that's that's better than anything that we did, please. Uh, pride. And we have to be watchful of that, even as Christians, that it is easy for pride to keep creep in and we become more concerned about ourselves, our input, our reputation, rather than keeping our eyes focused on the work that God has given us to do. And so we see this first issue here. Then the pendulum swings to the other side in the next few verses. You'll notice in verse 4, Gideon comes to the Jordan crossover, he and the 300 who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. And he said to the men of Succoth, uh, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. I am pursuing after Zeba and Zamuna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zamuna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? And so Gideon said, well, then when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and the briars. And from there, he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. (laughs) Interesting. All right. Well, from one side where we have the men of Ephraim going, well, why weren't we involved? We wanted to help. Why didn't you let us have a say in the matter? You swing the pendulum to the other side. Here is Gideon and his men. They are chasing these kings back across the Jordan River and down to the south. They are hunting them for miles and miles. And it says that they're worn out and exhausted. And they come to two different cities and they say, We need some food. I mean, we are worn out. We've been chasing these kings and will you help us out? And the response of both of those cities are, well, I don't see that you've captured them yet. (laughs) And what you get is this picture of they are in fear of retribution. We are afraid to give you any supplies because if you don't catch them, they're going to come back and do something to us. And so we don't see that you've captured them. And so Gideon then goes, well, I'm going to come back and wreck this place if you if you don't help. And they choose not to help when well, they are unwilling to lift a finger to help in any way. 
And so here's the other side where they simply say, you know what, we are unwilling to make any sacrifices for the causes of the Lord here. We're not going to help you out, Gideon. And I think it's a pretty shocking statement because think about what has happened here. They are admitting it is the 300 men who are helping Gideon, who have brought about this victory that obviously the Lord is with them. And now you're going to look at it and go, yeah, but you didn't quite finish the job, so we're not really sure that we're going to help you finish that. Of course the Lord is with them. Of course we're going to be victorious. Even Gideon's like, we're going to be victorious. We're going to get these two guys. And yet they're unwilling to do that. They are more concerned about how this impacts them physically and what Midian might do back to them, rather than being concerned with sacrificing to accomplish the task that lays before them. And I think that's an important reminder for us as we look at Gideon here and how godly people fall, is that godly people fall when we only look at the physical. And we start making calculations based on the physical rather than looking at what God would want to have done. We start thinking about, well, you know, that's not going to be really good for us. That's not going to be comfortable. I'm not going to find that to be terribly useful. You can imagine the calculation that these two cities are making. This might go really bad for us if we help you out. I don't know that we can afford to, to help you in this way. And, and Gideon does not respect uh, their response at all. And it is a reminder to us then about the problem of selfishness and really the problem of laziness as well. This decision of, well, I'm only going to do what's in my best interest. Uh, and we are really easily entrapped by that in a world today that tells us that you make all of your life calculations that way. The way to live your life is to determine, well, how does it affect you? Is it good for you? Is it important to you? Well, then that will be the way you will make decisions. And we have to watch against that, that we make sure our decisions are only calculated by what is good for God. What does God desire? What is good for the work of the kingdom of God? And not look at these things and consider, well, what would be good for me physically? And we have to be careful of that because... I have the tendency, as I'm sure we all are, is we want, don't, we would rather not make spiritual decisions, but we'd rather make decisions based upon, am I comfortable? What would be relaxing for me? What would be easiest for me? Rather than, what should I do? What would God have me to do with this decision? And here they make a decision that is very selfish indeed and do not do the things that God has called them to do. Which then leads to what Gideon does and all that. After pointing the finger at these surrounding tribes and cities, Gideon, very interesting, some of the things now that he does. From verse 10 all the way to verse 28, we now read about really some power going awry with with Gideon. Gideon goes and he captures these men and chases them down and pursues them. And he captures these kings. And after he captures them, he goes back to those two cities and does exactly what he said he was going to do. I mean, a shocking description is, is given here. Like in verse 16, when he goes to Succoth, he says, He took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth a lesson. I'll let you visualize what that means. 
He grabbed some thorns of the wilderness and he taught them a lesson. He says he's going to come back and whip them with thorns. And I guess that's what he did is he went back there and whipped them with thorns. And then the next verse is even worse. Verse 17, then he goes to Penuel and he breaks down the tower and killed the men of the city. Whoa, Gideon. Uh, Is that the godly response to all of this? Uh, I believe what we see here is now Gideon now goes back to these towns, wields his authority, wields his power. And after he does this to Penuel and does this to Succoth, you will notice that in verse 22, the men of Israel say to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. So I was like, okay, you're king. You can be in charge. You've got the power. You've just just wrecked two cities. Okay, Uh, we we get it. And it's just interesting what Gideon now is doing here at this moment, because you'll notice what he says in verse 23. He gives what sounds like a great response. He says in verse 23, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And I wish that's where this all stopped. Verse 24, and then Gideon said to them, but let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings of the spoil for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw it in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants of the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there and became a snare to Gideon and his family. Wow. So here is Gideon and he says, no, no, we are not going to, I'm not going to be your king. Neither is my son going to be a king. But he seems to erect a memorial. Give me all of your gold, these gold earrings, and I'm going to create this, this golden ephod which then turns to be out to be a thing of idolatry. And then the whole town now begins to worship after this thing. And then Gideon and his whole family then also fall into this idolatry and worship this thing. And what I think is interesting about what we see happening right here with Gideon is something that the Scriptures again and again tell us about with various characters of the Scriptures about the difficulty of finishing strong for the Lord. You can probably just kind of run through your mind of an awful lot of people who seem to be very strong with God, but do not finish strong. Here's an example of Gideon who says, I am weak, I can't do anything. God gives him the victory and now he's going about and I am victorious and now creates an idol and leads the people of Israel astray. How about King David and all of his great faith and the great acts that he does? And then after his sin, we see the decisions that he makes just unravel his life and the things that he does. And then his son Solomon, another example of starting strong, great wisdom, doing right in the ways of God. And then unraveling toward the end of his life as idolatry takes him away from the love of God. There is a great warning that God is giving us again and again about the necessity to finish strong in the Lord, to not give up our faith and to continue strong in serving God. And as a reminder to us 
that God's people fall when we stop pursuing Him fervently. It is easy to think that we've got enough Christian momentum that we're just going forward that we now can just begin to coast. And we kind of retire from God. Well, I've, I've run my race. I've finished my course. I don't need to do anything else. It's time for everybody else to do something. And I'm just going to kind of take my ease and just kind of roll in here every Sunday. That's all I've got to do. And let everybody else take care of it. And I think you see that danger often in the Scriptures of those who are great warriors of faith and servants of God. And then things unravel. And then they make a couple bad decisions and rather than getting back with God as they ought to, it becomes the undoing of their faith and the undoing of their life. Or they begin to coast or lose their love and their fervor for God. And it is, I think, a frightening thing for us to think about. That we could live our life for the Lord with great faith and great strength only to spend the final years of our life losing that zeal and not having that faith anymore. That is, I think, a frightening idea, a frightening thing that the Scriptures identify to see so many years of faithful service to God only to allow the final years of life to undo all that you had built in your faith toward God and your service toward God. We must be concerned about that. And I think it is important that we challenge ourselves to never forget the grace of God and to challenge ourselves to finish strong for the Lord. And I, I hope that especially as those of you who are approaching those older, older years, to never think about there's some kind of retirement from God. That you may not be able to do all the things that you used to do physically. But that doesn't mean that stops you from doing as much as you can for the Lord. That we should never look at it and go, well, there's just nothing else I can do anymore. And no doubt the things that you used to do probably you can't do as with the joy that you could have done before through physical difficulties and age. But to not allow those things to be the thing to say, well, now I'm just not going to fervently serve and fervently do what I can do for God. One of the most important things that we can see our older faithful members give is the display of faith to the other generations. Even the inability to be able to do the things that you did before, but just the displays of faith and service and what you can do is so encouraging and so uplifting. We have had so many of members here who have gone home to be with God who represent that, that just from like June Salibi to to Harriet Butts, of people who through great physical difficulty would continue to serve God in the way that they could. There is no retiring from God. There is no coasting with God. We fight strong with God all the way to the end until He takes us home. And it's so important that we remind ourselves of that because so often we see people in the Scriptures as a reminder of it's easy to give up at the end. It's easy to let it unwind toward the close of life. And God is looking for us to be like Caleb who say, hey man, I can just go at it with God as much as I did at the beginning. I'll keep doing it now. I'm going to keep serving the Lord and let's go. I love Caleb's attitude. And he just says, hey, give me that land. Give me the hard stuff. Let's go serve God. 
We see with Gideon such a problem here as it now unwinds. And we must plan, I believe we must plan to end strong and to live strong for God. And if we don't make that plan, then it is easy to allow our service to wane and no longer do the things that we could have done for God in the final years of our life. Which leads then to the next thing that Judges 8 brings up. And it's so fascinating to me how God put this paragraph together that he just identifies, well, and then this problem happened and then this problem happened. So Gideon says, oh, no, I will not be king over you, nor will my son be king over you. But notice verse 30. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Here is Gideon claims that he's not to be king, that the Lord is the king and we're supposed to follow him. And yet he's going to behave like a king and he's not going to behave as if God rules over his life. This is something that God expressly condemned. In particular, this was a problem that God identified that the kings would do is that they would multiply wives to themselves and that this would be a problem that would lead uh, people away from serving God. And here is now Gideon doing the exact same thing. Seventy sons for many wives. And if that were not enough, notice verse 31. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son and he called his name Abimelech. Now the reason why that is significant because he just called his kid, my father is king. That's his name. He tells everybody, no, no, I will not be king. I will not rule over you. God is king. We will follow his rules. And then he blatantly disobeys what God says, multiplies wives unto himself, and has all these children like he is a king. And then he calls one of his kids, my father's the king. You know, every day he went to school, everybody said his name, my father is king. We don't have a society like that. Names don't mean anything anymore. But that's that was the intention. My father is king. Which leads us then, I think, to the fourth thing that we observe. Godly people fall when we no longer practice what we say. Here's Gideon proclaiming, no, no, God is king. And yet nothing in his life mirrors that at this point. He's lost that. He thinks he's a servant of God. He's proclaiming the right things of God, but he's not doing what God said to do. And I think that is, again, just a critical reminder for us that we know the truth. We know what God says to do. The challenge is to do it. We must do exactly what we know we are supposed to do. And things that we have proclaimed earlier in our lives that the truth says we must do, that's what we must do. And I think that is so important is that it's so easy to say one thing and do another or hold other people to a different standard than the standard we will hold for ourselves in terms of spirituality. And here Gideon falls into that. Here he is, oh no, I'm going to certainly not take on this kingship myself, and yet he seems to take it on himself without the official title. Which then becomes really interesting. Notice again how the story just wants to layer another thing on. Verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. 
And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now we come to a very sad conclusion. And it is the problem of forgetfulness. As soon as Gideon dies, the people go right back into the idolatry that got them in trouble in the first place. And the text tells us they are forgetting about what God has done. They have forgotten about the salvation that God has given them. And then to add on top of that, even in verse 35, it says they didn't even show care for Gideon's family after he dies. They have forgotten all about what has happened. It's like a total erasure of the life of Gideon and how God had been with Gideon and given him the the deliverance and brought about this salvation through the hand of Gideon and the 300. They had forgotten all that had been accomplished by God. And I think it is interesting when we're told back in verse 28 that in the days of Gideon, they had 40 years of peace. 40 years. And here the text says they forgot all that. As soon as Gideon dies, right back to the same old thing. Right back to the Baal worship. No regard for what God has done. Forgetting the mighty works of Gideon that God had accomplished through his hand. And perhaps this is the the biggest warning to us of them all. Is that God's people fall when we forget what God has done. It happens again and again when we forget what God has done. This is... I believe sincerely this is the reason why God wanted this memorial every single week. Because God's people fall when they forget what their Lord has done for them. We must be reminded constantly about the salvation that God has done. Otherwise, we do the same thing. We go and well, forget about those things and right back into the sinful ways that we were doing before. It's so important for us to not forget what God has done. And it is interesting that remember how this all began when they were in their oppression from Midian. And rather than sending a judge right away, remember God sends a prophet. He sends a sermon to them instead of a savior. They have forgotten the message of that prophet, which said the reason why you're suffering is because you have turned your back and you've gone and worshiped the Baals. And then God delivers them anyway despite their idolatry and then they turn right back to the idolatry as soon as he dies. And as much as I feel vehement anger and shock at how Israel could do something like that, we stand on the very same position of being sinners before our God and God has accomplished such a great salvation even when we were enemies and then turn right back around and go right back into the sinful ways that we were doing before. And how God sees it is we have forgotten what our God has done for us. We have forgotten what He has accomplished. We reject the Lord and we return into the idolatry that got us in all of our mess in the first place. Let me leave you with some conclusions that I think are important as we wrap up Judges chapter 8 and we wrap up Gideon and his life. Because you think about what God now has been doing with Gideon over the span of this life. And it's so interesting that we get such a significant amount of Scripture devoted to Gideon, whereas others we get you know, a sentence, maybe a paragraph, 
Quite a bit of time spent with Gideon, some important lessons that I think are supposed to be observed by us when we look at his life and when we look at what God has done. One of the things that jumps off the page is that we see that God's purposes are compromised. When Gideon lost his focus of who he was and what the mission was given to him. He is a faithful servant of God and is going about bringing the deliverance to Israel. And then it seems he forgets all of that and he loses sight of what God has done for him. He loses sight of what God had accomplished through him. And he truly forgets who he was. If he'd remembered how he was hiding in that wine press back there trying to hide that wheat. If he remembered how he had argued with God about, I am the least of my family and the least of our clans. and You've got the wrong guy. And God had used supposedly one of the weakest men to win against Midian. If he'd only remembered what God had done. But instead, we see all of these issues now rise up. That God was able to take a nobody with no strength and use him as an instrument of salvation for the nation. But instead, what we see with the people of Israel as well as with Gideon, pride, selfishness, power and hypocrisy and forgetfulness are actually common tools that Satan uses to bring about the fall of his people. Satan likes to use these things, same weapons again and again. The Apostle Paul would remind us that we know the devil's schemes. We know what he's doing. And here is an instance where we see the tools used to destroy the faith of Gideon and destroy the faith of the nation. And I think it's important that we ask ourselves, is Satan using some of these tools in our lives today? Are some of these things that work in our lives to cause us to be weaker in our faith, to not serve the Lord as we know that we ought to serve Him? Is He bringing out some of these things either through selfishness or hypocrisy or forgetfulness? Any of these things that would cause us to take a step back and not be ready to carry out God's will and God's work, even in great difficulty. The encouraging thing that you see in the life of Gideon is that God is always building faith in his people. And there is the ability for us to look to God for strength, to look to God for faith, that that is what he desires for us to do and to not be distracted from the things that Satan is doing to take us away from him. And how often Satan will use wealth and comfort How often He will use our successes to forget what God has done for us. How often He will use pride that we'll begin to think, well, this is by our own hand and by our own might. That we'll lose sight of the love of God and the love that we're supposed to have for one another. Because we become consumed with what is going on within ourselves physically rather than seeing the greater picture of what God is trying to accomplish. I encourage each of us to make a plan in our life to finish strong. To devote yourself to finishing this life strong for the Lord. At whatever time and whatever happens, no matter how 
old we get or physically debilitated we get or how difficult it may be, no matter where we live or what we're doing, we will not allow these tools that Satan uses to take us away from the mission that God has given us to be lights in this world, to show Jesus to everyone we come in contact with, and to live our lives faithfully for our Lord. Finish strong. Don't give up. Never let up. And not retire. For we see too often the sad endings of many of the people of faith. And when we do this invitation, I want to give you the opposite as well. Manasseh, excuse me, Manasseh is interesting because here's somebody who lived his life completely in rebellion to God and then finished strong. It's not too late to reverse. It's never too late to reverse. To get out of the life of sin and serve the Lord your God today before it is too late. Serve Him and follow Him with all of your heart. And so when we sing this song, we're inviting you to turn away from your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And then to live a life faithfully for the Lord, recognizing how Satan will be attacking you and how you can stand firm in your Lord Jesus. Will you come and respond now while we stand and while we sing?